What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze, discuss, and disseminate history, mythology, and philosophy, and how they bubble up into our popular storytelling. I think if you've listened to us before, Midnight Myth listeners, you know that I am very excited to be back here with another Midnight Myth episode. We really do have a special one planned. Before I tell you what our subject matter is... And if you've been following us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, you probably already know it is Oscar season. And while we could debate whether the Oscars really matter and we could certainly debate when they select who's Oscar worthy, if like that is even important and or how they often seem to get it wrong. I mean, we live in a universe where Titanic won all the Oscars and no disrespect to the Titanic fans out there. Man, that's not a good movie. Anyway, I digress. Quentin Tarantino came out with a movie this year called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it's been on my to-do list to see. Laurel and I have not seen it as of yet. But it did win Best Picture in the Golden Globes. And it is nominated and expected to probably win some Oscars. And maybe Tarantino will finally get that long-awaited and elusive Best Director Oscar. And it got us thinking, like, hey... Of all of the films and TV and things that we've discussed, we've never dipped our toes into the chaos of the Quentin Tarantino film universe. Probably better that we not dip our toes in it, considering he has a well-known foot fetish, but go on. Is that actually truly well-known that he has a foot? Or I just thought he likes the aesthetics of feet, so feet are in every single movie. No, no, he has a full-blown foot fetish. Okay, well, that makes sense why he puts feet in his movie. Yeah. His movies, pardon me. Well, so we, in anticipation and celebration of one of the great American film auteurs who's out there still making interesting and uh, Oscar-worthy, at least Oscar-nominated worthy movies, we wanted to talk about Quentin Tarantino. And when we decided to do a Tarantino episode, we really knew exactly which Tarantino movie would be the most midnight myth. And that is the 2009 Inglorious Bastards. I have loved this movie from my first viewing. And I dare say it is, depending on my mood, either my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie or my second favorite Quentin Tarantino movie, because I'm also a diehard fan of Pulp Fiction. But we really can't, can't wait to discuss 
Inglorious Bastards. We've been watching the movie. We've been thinking about World War II. We've been discussing historical fiction. We've been discussing how this movie has been made. We have a lot to get to. So no more preamble. Let's roll up our sleeves and let's start talking Inglorious Bastards. But before we get too deep into it, just a little more preamble. Laurel, a lot of people want to know how to talk to us, how to support us, how to buy merch, how to give us a review. How can they do that? Well, there's tons of ways to do that. First and foremost, we would love if you followed us on social media because that's where you'll get by the minute updates about what's going on with the Midnight Myth. So definitely follow us on Twitter at the Midnight Myth or on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We would love to hear from you there. Um, if you wanted to get in touch with us or sign up for our email list, you'll only get uh, about an email a month from us. Uh, you can find a contact form for that on our website, which is midnightmyth.com. While you're on that website, make sure you check out our blog. You check out uh, the link to our Patreon, which is a platform where you can support us for a low monthly donation and get some extra perks in return. Or a high monthly donation. Or a high monthly donation. Whatever you can spare, we will take it. It helps us to cover our costs uh, and you know, cover some of our time that we put into this podcast, which we make very, very little, if any, many money from. Uh, the other thing you can do to support us is buy merch. And you can find the link for our merch store on that website as well, midnightmyth.com. We have tons of t-shirts, tote bags, sweatshirts, onesies, phone cases, anything you can possibly imagine for both the Midnight Myth and the Wheel of Ka, our spinoff Dark Tower podcast. I think... That's all our big stuff at the moment. Did I miss anything? Uh, yeah, give us a rating and review if you can on iTunes. Five stars, that'd be great. Yeah, that's the most meaningful thing you can do for us and it costs you no money. Absolutely. And uh, if you buy some merch or you want to talk to us, you hit us up, say something interesting, cool, we'll give you a shout out here on the pod. Would love to. All right, so let's start with the briefest of briefest of recaps. It's now 2020. This movie came out in 2009. So it may be a while since our Dear Midnight Myth listeners have seen it. It's a hard movie to recap. Quentin Tarantino is known for having lots of characters and lots of time jumps and lots of plots that overlap with each other. And Inglorious Bastards is no different. In the simplest terms, it is about a guerrilla army of Jewish American soldiers nicknamed the Bastards who drop into German occupied France during World War II and start waging a guerrilla war against the Germans in hopes to um, damage the war effort, spread some anti-Nazi propaganda, and uh, ultimately, hopefully, topple Hitler. Um, this happens, and they are quite successful at going around and killing all of these Nazis. At the same time, it's about a German SS officer uh, named Colonel Hans Landa, whose job is to find all of the remaining hidden Jews in German-occupied Paris and exterminate them one way or another, and a character named Shoshana, who is a Parisian living, who's Jewish, living in disguise as a Gentile, running a cinema, whose family got murdered by Colonel Hans Landa. All of these plots converge into something called Operation Kino, in which there is a movie called... Um, Nation's Pride. Thank you, Nation's Pride. And a big Nazi premiere is happening in Paris at Shoshana's movie theater. Everyone thinks that she is a... Um, a German, I'm sorry, a Parisian non-Jewish person. Emmanuel Mimieux. So the bastards conspire to blow up said theater 
And Shoshana, she conspires to burn it down to kill all of the Nazis in the high-ranking command. A lot of things happen in between there, but ultimately, Colonel Hans Lander and Aldo the Apache, who is the leader of the Inglorious Bastards, decide that they're going to work together. Hans Landa is going to allow them to kill all of the high-ranking command, ending the war, and... Uh, you know, bringing a brutal and violent death to all of the top Nazis, including a scene where one character named uh, Sergeant Donnie Donowitz shoots Hitler in the face so many times that his head explodes. The theater burns down, it blows up. Um, then, you know, Colonel Hans Landa surrenders to Aldo the Apache, who then kills his driver, and Aldo the Apache carves a swastika in Colonel Hans Landa's forehead, and then looks into the camera. Aldo the Apache says, you know what? I think I just made my masterpiece and movie. Nice. Well done. It was not an easy movie to recap, and I appreciate your valiant effort there. Why, thank you. I thought less was more with the recap. We've all seen the movie. And plus, there were way too many great scenes and great characters to recap. So let's move into talking about the movie in a more generalized sense. I know there's a lot of specific things that you and I want to get to in our discussion, but like any time we go back to a movie that we maybe haven't seen for a while or has been out for a while, this one now 11 years, just tell me, like, give me your gut reaction. How do you feel? Is this movie as good as you remember? Is it better? Is it worse? Any, like, just quick points you'd like to highlight? You know, I think this just might be Quentin Tarantino's masterpiece. Uh, for me, I know you said in the intro that uh, this wavers between being your favorite and your second favorite. For me, this is my unequivocal favorite Tarantino movie. I just love every second of it. It has tremendous rewatchability. It has uh, his tightest and most uh, complex and interesting script. I think the writing in this is just almost unparalleled how good the dialogue is, how well the uh, different layers and threads of the story feed into one another. Uh, and the performances just bring it alive in a way that uh, is so thrilling and exciting and rewards uh, multiple watches. So this is one I could go back to again and again and again and always find something new, whether that's a new reference to uh, you know, 30s German cinema or, uh, you know, something entirely different. Uh, and so I'm really excited to talk about it from a few different angles tonight because I think, uh, you know, you can go over this movie with a fine-tooth comb again and again and always find something new and always find something inspiring about it. I totally agree with everything you just said. There are lots of different ways that you can analyze this movie. I want to make a few general call-outs um, that I saw watching this movie again in preparation for this podcast that I think are part and parcel of the Tarantino magic that I think he employs with great skill and great mastery in this movie. So one, you mentioned the writing, but it's also the scene itself. Every scene is a mini battle between the characters there trying to gain the upper hand over the other one. And in so many Tarantino movies, it's about two gangsters you know, trying to get the upper hand or maybe a monster and a non-monster or maybe, you know, it's always about people trying to gain the upper hand. In this one, it is done in such an amazing way from the very first scene. Every scene is slow. Every edit of the camera, precise and crisp. And each edit itself adds to it. 
the way that the movie will go from a close-up to far away, the way the camera shifts point of view to make us see this scene from a whole 360-degree way, the way, for example, in Operation Kino, when they go into the basement, that the camera pauses and sees the French bartender realizing that a gunfight's about to happen, reach for a double-barrel shotgun behind the bar, a small nod to the Western in this, like, you know, revenge fantasy war epic. He sneaks these little things in every single moment is really well done. And I think it accentuates his very talented writing. I have to call out every actor in this movie. Every single actor in this movie is phenomenal. There's not a single performance that isn't fantastic. And I, I just, I'm in all of the way that Tarantino gets these great performances in every movie. Even if Tarantino has a movie that I don't love, I don't think is the greatest movie ever, I admit that everyone performs admirably in it. And lastly, if you would have told me that Tarantino would sneak a David Bowie in a World War II movie and it would work perfectly, I would have laughed before 2009. And the way that Tarantino integrates rock and roll, uh, soul, just the way he integrates a soundtrack and music into his movies is amazing. It is Martin Scorsese-esque. Yeah, I'll point out that that song, that David Bowie song that he uses, is uh, the theme song from the movie Cat People, too, which is about like a woman raised by cats who has cat-like tendencies and eventually returns to the cats. It's like a classic... 80s monster movie type thing and that is layered on top of this World War II epic and this kind of revenge moment for Shoshana so it's uh, an unexpected and kind of impossible incongruity but it works and it's extraordinarily powerful um, this is a war movie that barely ever touches the battlefields it takes place most of the time across a table with like you said people deciding who's going to get the other hand, the upper hand moment by moment. It pays considerable homage to the Western and, of course, the spaghetti Western, even opening with uh, the music that's layered over the credits is an Ennio Morricone theme, uh, and it is constantly pulling on those, uh, those pulpish genres that uh, Tarantino is so... Um, so inextricably tied to in terms of what inspires him uh, and to take that and, uh, you know, contextualize it in a World War II movie, which is usually characterized by incredible reverence, uh, is, it is a thrill. Uh, and of course it owes a debt to other war movies like The Dirty Dozen and so on, but it feels uh, in many ways, although it is emerging from a complex web of references, very new and very different. Yeah. And in every great Tarantino movie, there's always a standout performance. There's always someone who is just so phenomenal and does such a great job that it makes and defines the movie. This is true of Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction, and this is true of Christoph Waltz in this movie. His performance is the magic, like, ace that just everything revolves around this weird, goofy, polite, mass-murdering lunatic is probably the best part of this movie. He's technically the bad guy in the movie. You can't help but like him a little bit. Yeah, but he's also kind of the most terrifying villain of like the last 20 years. He is a, a character who is always in control. 
who is deeply manipulative and is always manipulating his subjects like a cat playing with a mouse. Uh, he never, ever gives an inch, and yet he can make you uh, feel comfortable walking right into a trap. Uh, I, I find him supremely scary, and that's a testament to the writing and to the performance. It's outstanding. And, you know, culminating in, he doesn't give a shit about the Nazi ideology at all. No. As soon as he thinks, you know what, we're probably going to lose this war, eh, so I'll, you know, I'll kill Hitler and Gorbals And, and just uh, make sure I'm set for life. Yeah, and get set for life, and I'll join the Americans, because he has no allegiance to anyone or anything but himself. He hunts Jews because he thinks it's fun. Which is like crazy. How do you make Nazis more disgusting and detestable? Make them not even believe the racial propaganda, but still go out and murder Jews anyway? You know, like that's just so low. It's lower than a Nazi. It's so gross. Yeah, it's insidious. He does it because uh, he's good at it, right? And because he feels like he can play a part in this machine and that it is the natural order of things. Uh, and he talks about it with such a a detachment that makes it even scarier. Yep, absolutely. All right, let's dive a little deeper here into this. One thing that I want to call out that really struck out to me in this rewatch pre this podcast, the very first thing we see is once upon a time in Nazi-occupied Paris or France. France. And starting it with once upon a time, it got me thinking structurally, what kind of movie is this? A lot of Tarantino movies have time jumps between scenes. This one follows more or less a pretty linear path um, with maybe a few like backwards and forwards is here and there. Is this movie a fairy tale? Because I think structurally it kind of is. It says once upon a time, it starts with a cottage with three beautiful young women at the cottage, very much like, you know, the sisters of Cinderella. Um, we have this dashing and charming quote unquote prince of the Nazis in Hans Lander, but it upends this normal fairy tale style and trope. It has um, this beautiful princess who is lost in the world, who needs to reclaim her heritage in Shoshana. Right. And then it also has like the huntsmen and woodsmen out there fighting in the wilderness to tame for civilization in the bastards and in a certain way, from a certain perspective, this is not necessarily structured as a war movie. Maybe it's structured as a fairy tale. I really like that, uh, you know, that opening title card, Once Upon a Time in Nazi-Occupied France. It owes as much uh, to the Spaghetti Western and uh, Sergio Leone's um, Once Upon a Time in the West as it does to the fairy tale. And it's uh, kind of clashing these two different types of genres. But we also have, of course, our innocent persecuted heroine in uh, Shoshana, who ends up taking total control of her situation and gaining this incredible revenge, which is something that feels fairy tale like in a lot of ways. It is something that we see, um, we see patterns of justice emerge in the fairy tale that usually uh, disproportionately fall on the side of that innocent persecuted hero or heroine. Uh, you know, Cinderella's sisters get their eyes pecked out in the end because they have been terrible to their innocent sister. Uh, so we definitely have a lot of uh, structural parallels there. And we have, you know, nods to it every once in a while, like the shoe being slipped onto the foot of Bridget von Hammersmark, which places her at the scene of the crime. If the shoe fits, you must wear it. 
So I think that's an interesting way to, to get into it. And it also helps us kind of understand the motivation behind uh, why do alternate history? You know, because this is not at all a history of World War II. This is not presented as a factual uh, presentation of what happened in the 1940s in Europe. Not at all, and it doesn't pretend to be. It loosely places itself in uh, this cultural moment, in this historical moment, but it gives a, an exaggerated and uh, fantastical presentation of uh, these big concepts of justice and revenge. Yeah. Do you really think this movie is about justice per se? And the reason I ask that, if we look at this as a like counterfactual historical fantasy and our historical fairy tale, you know, we can certainly say that in the real historical record, I mean, the Nazis did come to justice for the most part, right? They lost the war. All of the high-ranking members were either dead, imprisoned, or executed. So there was actual justice in history. Like, I don't know if justice is the lens that I, like, philosophically unpack this movie. Certainly agree with vengeance. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction to make, uh, and it's a complex and difficult thing to tear apart. But, uh, you know, if we're looking at it from the lens of is this a fairy tale, you know, the kind of world that created fairy tales, that we uh, used fairy tales to deal with, uh, saw vengeance and justice as tied, if not the same thing. If you are dealt a personal injury, it is your duty to get retribution for that until we get, you know, structures of law uh, that do that for us. But in the modern world, those things start to come untied. That knot comes untied between vengeance and justice. And that is a, uh, you know, a question that is asked by a lot of modern literature and culture and art. Uh, and I think, you know, at the heart of it, there is a part of human nature that still, if you're in the thick of bloodlust and, and vengeance and, uh, you know, anger and emotion, Vengeance and justice feel like the same thing. Vengeance feels like justice. Got it. Yeah. Uh, so just from the lens of the fairy tale, that feels really potent. Uh, you know, I think that that is a really cool way into this movie about like, what is this movie? What is the kind of story it's trying to tell? And I think that this idea of it as a fairy tale is a really interesting way to get into it. Uh, I think another way to look at this uh, is to uh, kind of follow this path that we're on here you know, as indebted as uh, Quentin Tarantino is to uh, contemporary cinema, I think uh, one of the things that this movie owes its structure to the most is the classical revenge tragedy and then the Elizabethan revenge tragedy. So we're going back to like ancient Roman theater here. Uh, the revenge drama is originated by Seneca, who was a first century playwright and statesman and philosopher. He ended up being the tutor to Nero, the infamous Roman emperor. And I like to think of Seneca the playwright as the ancient Roman Quentin Tarantino. So I'll explain that a little bit. He wrote plays that were characterized by murder, mayhem, and madness. They were gory, violent, bloody, and interested in exposing a grotesque side of human nature that desires revenge. It is um, kind of ironic to think about Seneca this way because he's known as like the top Stoic philosopher. 
And stoicism is characterized very much by reason and logic and you know, being unbothered by misfortune so that you can face life's challenges bravely. But then he wrote these like bloodthirsty plays. Uh, so it's an interesting irony about him. But uh, these plays were also seen as being highly referential. So he would uh, adapt plays by Euripides and Sophocles, like Medea or Oedipus, which have revenge at their heart. And he would constantly reference other myths and writers and playwrights from ancient Greek and Rome. Uh, definitely something that we see in Tarantino's work, being highly referential. And Seneca was also uh, verbose, to say the least. Uh, his work was characterized by lengthy soliloquies and rhetorical display, which is also something we see in Quentin Tarantino. But uh, these plays, these revenge tragedies, sort of fell out of fashion until they were rediscovered by uh, Renaissance writers. And they were being read and reread and translated in Elizabethan England until the genre kind of had a comeback. And it really inspired the works of playwrights that we know a lot better these days, like Shakespeare and Marlowe and Thomas Kidd. So Shakespeare's play Titus Andronicus is pretty much an adaptation of a Seneca play that features uh, a woman's sons being baked into a pie and served to her. It's pretty gruesome. Gory. Yeah. Um, and Hamlet is also deeply indebted uh, to the works of Seneca. Um, but a couple of conventions I want to lay out for you here so we can decide whether Inglorious Bastards is a revenge tragedy in the Senecan or Elizabethan tradition. Uh, and those uh, conventions are, it's in five acts. Inglorious Bastards is in five chapters. Those chapters are, once Upon a Time in Nazi-Occupied France, The Inglorious Bastards, A German Night in Paris, Operation Kino, and Revenge of the Giant Face. So we also have violent, bloody murders and grotesque uh, displays of violence. Uh, those might include beheading or cannibalism. But in Inglorious Bastards, we get scalping and scarring instead. Uh, we have use of disguises. And in Inglorious Bastards, we have spies masquerading as German officers. We have Shoshana masquerading as Emmanuel Mimieux. We have the bastards pretending to be Antonio Margarete and Dominic de Coco and Enzo Gorlami. We have a fifth act that culminates in a violent climax, which leaves most of the characters dead and a pile of corpses on the stage. We have a theater fire that kills almost all of our characters. Uh, the Avenger and their accomplices are killed. That is pretty much accomplished in Inglorious Bastards. Uh, something that was introduced in the Elizabethan tradition, we have a Machiavellian character. So we have a character um, inspired by the traditions of Niccolo Machiavelli, so a manipulative, uh, power-hungry character who asserts their own will over the will of others. We have that in Inglorious Bastards in Hans Landa. Uh, we have ghosts. This one is, uh, this comes directly from Seneca, a ghost will usually direct the revenge. That's something that you see in Hamlet, too. And this we don't get literally in Inglorious Bastards, but we do have Shoshana's face uh, projected onto the smoke, calling herself the face of Jewish vengeance. And she's already and actually she's already dead. dead. So she's speaking from beyond the grave. Uh, we have metatheatricality and plays within plays, which you'll remember from Hamlet being very important. Uh, this is about a film within a film, and it's constantly referencing other films. Um, and then a couple more we have uh, distinctively foreign settings, Once Upon a Time in Nazi-occupied France, uh, and comedy, 
an emphasis on politics. What else can we, uh, you know, tie these two genres together by? They you seem- have sold me that it's an Elizabethan Senecan tragedy. Yeah. And what's I think so interesting about this is that this is such an old form. This is such an old way to engage with that desire for vengeance, which is natural when it comes to the horror that was the Holocaust. Like this is a, an emotional thing. We are motivated by emotions that still live with us about this awful part of our history that is still living memory. So there are people who were, uh, you know, including myself, but uh, especially people who have like human ties to uh, to World War II felt, you know, cathartic release at this movie and felt, you know, that this was delivering a sense of closure that could not be achieved in real life, which was one of the primary functions of ancient Greek and Roman theater to evoke fear and pity and provide some sort of purge of emotion, some sort of catharsis. And I think that that's really kind of amazing that this really modern, really postmodern movie was able to do that. So let me uh, unpack this a little bit. We've established a basic structure here. So you have given the sort of formula of this movie is that it follows the Senecan and Elizabethan style tragedies, that it's a, a in particular a revenge, a revenge tragedy. tragedy. Yeah. All right. So we now know it as a revenge tragedy, which you would say is probably more accurate than a fairy tale, correct? I think that they are both part of it. I think they're absolutely both part of it. And I think Tarantino is probably more aware of it being a fairy tale than a revenge tragedy. But I think that that, that they're both underneath it. Really? You don't think that Tarantino knows about the Senecian? I think Tarantino has read a lot of plays, but I don't know that he set out to, you know, evoke all of the things that Seneca was writing. So you think it might be unconscious then? I think so. I think, and I I really don't know. The way it lines up so perfectly makes me feel like it couldn't be random, right? Right. But Tarantino, while he's not always forthcoming with all of his, uh, you know, reasons for making the kinds of films that he makes, he's very forthcoming with his influences. And, you know, to my knowledge, he hasn't really talked about the influence of Shakespeare and uh, Marlowe on his work. So, uh, you know, it's an interesting question. I I wish we could have him on for an interview. Yeah, so Tarantino's people, have him call our people, and we'll bring him on and we'll ask him this question. But regardless, I think that, uh, you know, those are functions and those are um, conventions that are so influential that they can sort of unconsciously seep into our work. So let me ask you this. If the purpose of the revenge tragedy is for the audience to feel catharsis, is that a virtue? Meaning, if we understand the Inglorious Bastards as a revenge movie inspired to make us feel catharsis, where's the catharsis? Who should we be feeling for? And... Is it virtuous? In other words, is it good? Is it good? Wow. Um, You know, I think there are, there are multiple sides to this question with regard, especially to this particular movie. Uh, You know, I think as many people as there are that felt catharsis and that felt release watching this movie, there are also people who were disturbed uh, by the role reversal of victim and aggressor, by the fact that uh, you know, the Inglorious Bastards are a group of Jewish American soldiers who inflict 
uh, incredible violence. War crimes. Yeah. We see our torture, heroes, yeah. our heroes torture and kill prisoners of war, which now we currently have international law. Those international laws came after World War II, but genuinely speaking, tactically speaking, armies don't torture and kill each other's prisoners because they are f- afraid of retribution of the other side doing that. And it's genuinely have been considered for a long time to be wrong to torture and kill a prisoner. And I think just morally speaking, a prisoner shouldn't be tortured and killed, right? Yeah, absolutely. Our heroes do this, which could be very problematic, right? Yeah. Even if they do it to Nazis, it could be very problematic. So where do we go? What is the virtue of this movie? Is this movie not a good movie? Because it clearly is a good movie. Without a doubt, it's a great movie. But is it good? Is it ethical? Right. Is it putting good out into the world? And I think you could ask the same questions for, uh, you know, movies and plays and works of literature that deal with revenge. Are they putting good out into the world or are they promoting uh, the kind of retributive violence that is taking place on screen? Well, you mentioned Titus Andronicus, right? Yeah, yeah. That movie, when that main character gets revenge and we see where that character goes to get the revenge, the purpose at least that I take out of it is that vengeance killed not only these children that he is feeding to the parents it killed the person that did it ultimately that person is so far lost and became such a monster to revenge that you walk away thinking man it's probably better to not get revenge this movie doesn't do that this movie says get that vengeance you know kill all the nazis blow them up explode their faces shoot the women as they're fleeing, you know, with in, in the back with a machine gun as they're fleeing from a fire. And I wonder if that complicates the ethics of it. Yeah, I think that's key. You know, and we, if we look back to uh, the revenge drama uh, tradition and we look back at the Elizabethan plays and the, uh, the Senecan plays, uh, we have this kind of absence in a lot of the early plays of overt moralizing about whether revenge is right and wrong. Um, so we have... All of Seneca's baddies deserve what they get. And at the end of the play, it's pretty much assumed that the balance is reset. Uh, An equilibrium has been restored. Revenge has given way to a new balance. Um, And, you know, there's some complication around that. It's, It's a little bit reductive, but it's not until later plays like Hamlet that we get the uh, sort of open address of the psychological toll that revenge takes and we get characters thinking aloud about how much their psyche is damaged, how dehumanized they are in the act of revenge. And that's a much more modern uh, thing to be preoccupied with. You know, I think about like Batman comics and I think about V for Vendetta and I think about a lot of like really contemporary stories that come right out and say like, this is the damage that revenge does. It is not restorative. It is just cumulative. It is just violence upon violence. And this movie doesn't do that. Uh, This movie portrays the vengeance as triumphant. Uh, And, you know, we can possibly get there on our own by saying like, okay, Shoshana had to lay down her life for her vengeance. Most of the bastards had to lay down their lives for their vengeance. But all in all, it's not that preoccupied with showing you the cost. So I think this is a good question because of that. Yeah, that's an interesting way to frame it. You know, I I frame it the ethics of this movie slightly differently, though I don't think you're wrong in any way, shape, yeah, or form. Yeah. 
Because to me, I frame this from the perspective of the like history buff here. And I wonder what it means to have historical fiction rewrite the end of a war and what that can potentially mean and reverberate. There are some actual pragmatic concerns to this for me. For example, let's say a thousand years from now, our American civilization is gone. The German civilization that we know it is gone. And most of the historical records have been lost. But the one historical record that remains from World War II, apart with, with coupled with archaeological evidence, is Inglorious Bastards. What if this becomes the record of what happens in this movie? Now, that might sound absurd to anyone who hasn't studied ancient history, but as someone who has, who knows that flourishing and great and powerful civilizations can sometimes be reduced to just a few actual sources to write their entire history, it's not impossible. So what if that happens and the entire history of World War II gets reduced in a thousand years to inglorious bastards? You know, there's an entire um, YouTube channel based on this premise called Earthling Cinema, which is a pretty funny YouTube channel. Yeah, that's true. That has an alien trying to understand human civilization after humans are gone. Through movies. Through their movies yeah. and what it says about humanity. And it's a, it's a funny, you know, really interesting take on film analysis that I do recommend. But at the same time, I think there's a a certain level when you when you partake in historical fiction, should you as a writer of historical fiction contend with that question? I don't know the answer to that. The other question is, what role does historical fiction actually have? Is historical fiction itself ethical? Knowing that when you do a historical fiction, you inevitably are changing the history. Because if you're going to do a fiction that's just the history, it wouldn't probably make good fiction because life doesn't follow a Joseph Campbellian narrative sense. Yeah, and to add to that, you know, history is written by someone. You know, there are things to contend with, like memory and implicit biases that make it almost, uh, I mean, genuinely impossible to convey objective truth for future generations with absolutely nothing left out. In fact, you don't have until the 19th century a consensus among historians to say we should fact check each other and try to be objective right. in the way we analyze, we analyze and write history. That happened in the 19th century. That's not that long ago. That's yeah. 200 years ago. All history prior to that isn't subject to peer review, isn't subject to uh, trying to have a level of objectivity to it. In fact, quite the opposite. All of the chronicles and historians prior to then really don't even take that as a concern. They approach the history with a preset assumption that echoes through the history. So I say this in saying, what's the role, long story short, of historical fiction? So I want to pick out, I found a few interesting perspectives on it. In particular, I found a really interesting New York Times article that had two different authors, both who are, wrote historical fiction, both who were successful, one arguing that, Run your writing historical fiction, play fast and loose. Do what you got to do to tell your story. And it doesn't really matter if you're historically honest or not. And one who says, 
the whole purpose of historical fiction is to convey some level of honesty. I'd like to pick both of these quotes out here in understanding the ethics of the movie, if you'll permit me, Laurel. Please do. All right, so the first quote here is from an author by the name of Thomas Mallon. I've never read any of his works, but he wrote a book about Watergate, a fictional account, and he came under scrutiny because he had Mrs. Nixon in a romantic affair. And that drew the ire of the Nixonians, that drew the ire of people saying, you have tainted this woman in your fiction who never purportedly had this affair. And he said about it, quote, I was trying to tell, I'm pardon me, restarting the quote, quote, I was trying to get at some larger truth through a particular lie, which is finally what all fiction, historical and otherwise, has to do. In other words, bending the historical record to tell a greater truth is an acceptable bargain from his perspective. Now, the other author by the name of Anya Mathis has a different way to look at it and saying that you must have some level of historical truth in this. Otherwise, you risk distorting and actually damaging the, the truth. And this, I'll have this quote, quote, fiction generates truth independently of fact. It is a repository of meanings and resonances to which the writer does indeed have a great responsibility. Whether the subject is Sherman's March or a group of Machiavellian rabbits in search of a new home. She's talking about my favorite book, Watership Down There. And in particular, she's referencing Sherman's March to the Sea and Gone with the Wind. Yeah. And how Gone with the Wind divorces historical truth from many of the characters, predominantly some of the slaves, and even some of the slave-owning women in their Scarlet O'Hara robs them of the historical truth of what Sherman's March to the Sea was, and what that meant, and then perverts the real truth of what that experience should be. And hence, it shouldn't be in the book. If I'm looking at Inglorious Bastards, I'm inclined to agree with Anya Mathis. Wow, okay. Rather than Thomas Mallon. I respect when an author has to do what they have to do to tell their story. Who am I? I'm not an author. To tell them otherwise. But I think if you are telling, if you're, if fiction generates a truth independent of fact, then yes, the author has a great responsibility in that. So if you're going to divorce yourself from a facts and you're going to live in a fact-free, you know, author environment, there must be some underlying truth that you're trying to tell. Otherwise, you shouldn't have that power. Leave history to the historians. Which then begs the question, if that's the lens to Inglorious Bastards, does it tell some truth independent of fact? Or is it purely revenge porn against the Nazis? Would you like me to try my hand at answering that? Please. I have thought of an answer preemptive to this as well, but I would love to hear yours first. Yeah, um, I think this is a, a fascinating question, and I think there are numerous ways to answer this. But for me, this movie is rage. Uh, the underlying truth that this movie is trying to convey is a punk rock kind of rage. Uh, you know, a feeling of helplessness and anger and fear at what actually happened in our history. And, you know, a filmmaker who has one tool at his disposal, which is his art, 
uh, using that art to fictitiously save the world. And in the world of Inglorious Bastards, film literally saves the world. That's something that Quentin Tarantino loves about this movie project that he made. Uh, the opportunity to save a world that did not save itself because the rage at what really happened is so strong. Um, I'd love to share a quote as well that comes from an essay by Sheldon Roth, who is Eli Roth's father. Eli Roth is the actor who plays uh, Donnie Donowitz in this movie, The Bear Jew, and he's also a horror director. And uh, his father, Sheldon Roth, wrote an essay called My Son Killed Adolf Hitler, which was about the cathartic experience of watching that moment in this movie. Uh, and he says, quote, Film has the power to capture us through its similarity to dreaming because both are primarily visual. Using images, dreams recast our lives with endless abandon. Feelings and dreams stick closer to actual experience, offering a direct route to understanding mysterious languages. When watching Inglorious Bastards, I try to slip into the daring freedom of dreaming. Tarantino encourages us to dream with the fairy tale words scrawled along the bottom of the screen in the very first frame once upon a time in Nazi-occupied France. As Plato said, the good dream of what the bad do, end quote. Uh, and that, I think, sort of emotionally encapsulates the truth that's at the heart of this movie. Interesting. I think, I don't disagree, but I have some problems with that. That's fine, yeah. And it, it's not that you're wrong. It's that I think you're couching the truth in the emotion, and saying that the emotion is the truth. I absolutely am doing that. And that's a fine way to interpret it because feelings are true. When you feel something yeah, that's true, you yeah. feel it. But that's not the truth that I'm going for in the question. Okay. For me, I'm asking for, is there an actual philosophical truth that we could understand independent of emotions? Because people will have different emotional reactions. Some people watch this movie and felt the emotion of disgust. And if there isn't an underlining philosophical truth, why shouldn't they just feel disgust? After all, our heroes are war criminals. We may feel disgusted by that. You know, to you know, carve a swastika in someone's head is no small thing. Even if the person deserves it, it's still no small thing to watch a hero do. And we may find ourselves not feeling rage at that. We may find ourselves feeling disgust. And my... The, the truth that I think this movie conveys, and I think it's couched in the dialogue and the opposition of our protagonists and our antagonists. Okay. If we understand every Nazi as the antagonist and every not, not Nazi as the protagonist, as I think we should, the Nazis are the polite ones. The Nazis are the nice ones. The Nazis are the ones with nice, elegant speech. The Nazis are the ones who speak multiple languages. The Nazis are the one making these elegant points. The Nazis are the ones winning the conversations. To me, the point of this is to not be suckled or seduced by the veneer of civilization. Ooh, yeah. Right? Do not do not get sucked in by the fact that Christopher Walt or Christoph Waltz's Hans Landa is super charming. Do not get sucked in by the other uh, major who wins the guessing game in seconds and about how clever he is and how clever it is that he figures out, um, you know, that uh, Lieutenant Hickox is actually a, an Englishman and not a German and is masquerading. Do not get tempted by the idea that 
Polite manners does not make a civilized society on its own. If that polite manners is is covering up the mass extermination of a race of human beings. To me, the truth of this movie is that the rough, the rustic, the angry, the punk rock, the as you say, frontier justice. Yeah. They're the civilized ones yeah. in this. And that, yeah, Aldo the Apache may commit war crimes. He may torture and kill his prisoners. He may scalp them. But that is nothing compared to what the Third Reich do- did in World War II. That shouldn't even, that doesn't even tip the scales. The fact of the matter is, we don't see vengeance. All we see in this movie is potentially one way to have stopped more people from dying. And the sad truth is a lot more people died before the world stopped the Nazis. To me, it's about the truth of what does it mean to actually be a civilization? What does it require? What do you need to be a civilized human being? And could you be a rough and tumbled and ill-dressed person and be more civilized than the well-dressed, well-educated person who puts all of their intellect and energy in mass extermination of other human beings. And that, I think, is a potent truth that is resonating and we should examine today as Americans in 2020. What makes us the civilized leaders of this world as the way the Nazis thought they were the civilized leaders of the world well, what are, what are we actually doing with our power and our authority? And are we actually as civilized as we think and say we are? And I think that to me is the truth that speaks independently of the emotion. I think that's the philosophical core of this movie. That is why we should feel the catharsis and the release and the joy when we see the uh, uh, cinema explode. And, and to me, that is the, the core of this movie. I, I love it. I thought that was so, so well said. You know, it doesn't matter how well uh, your suit is pressed, how clean your uniform is, and how well you speak. Uh, if you're a fucking villain, you're a fucking villain. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's just incredible. I couldn't have said it better myself. And the civilization is in and of itself uncivilized, despite this outwardly appearance of being so educated and so well-spoken and so charming and so seductive. You know, everyone hangs out at a fancy restaurant and they have a nice conversation figuring out what cinema it is. But you know what started that conversation? It started the conversation with a Nazi degrading Americans because of the color of their skin. Yeah. You know, like that's how that scene starts. Oh, it's really amazing that you know Hans Lander can come in and speak English to a farmer and have this really interesting conversation about the philosophy of whether or not you should hate rats or squirrels. At the end of the day, that scene was about power, dominance, and murder. And all of the polite and nice words do not change that it was about those three fucking things. Power, dominance, that leads to murder. And we see people get murdered. And we should remember this and take that as the truth from this movie. Yeah, um, I just completely love it. I, I I think that is brilliant. Yeah. What else do you have? Wow, I mean, I have pages and pages and pages more notes. Should I just go through bullet by bullet or like... <laughs> but just uh, one thing that I wanted to touch on lately was the 
the war mythologies and the modern mythologies that are uh, made surrounding characters in this film, um, much like propaganda circulates through uh, the, the German armies and the German people, um, the, the, the major characters of this film get larger-than-life personas that are played up uh, with their enemies and with their friends, uh, and most of that is done through the use of nicknames. So we have, of course, the Bear Jew, uh, who has a reputation for beating uh, Nazi soldiers to death with a baseball bat, but he's also referred to uh, in the war room with Hitler as a golem. Um, and I've talked about the golem before on the podcast, but legendary uh, figure from Jewish folklore who was a protector of the Jewish ghettos created out of clay, um, who usually in most versions of the tale has an inscription on his forehead uh, that sort of activates him, uh, which is not unlike the sort of reversal in inscribing the foreheads of the Nazis with the swastika. So I thought that was a very interesting um, interesting thing to put there. But then we also, of course, have the big, um, you know, power players of the two sides. We have Hans Landa as the Jew hunter versus Aldo the Apache, Aldo Rain, who has a little bit of Native American in him. So he adopts this persona of Aldo the Apache. And those epitomize this sort of uh, great German hero versus this great American hero. And they go head to head with their modern mythologies. So I think that's an interesting thing to point out there. Um, Tarantino called Shoshana the Jewish Joan of Arc, which I just love um, and is driven home with the final uh, images of her face projected onto the screen and then to smoke, which are a tight, tight close-up in black and white with no makeup, which alludes not only to the French martyr, but the movie that was made about her, The Passion of St. Joan, one of the first movies to use close-ups almost exclusively. Uh, so just one of many uh, really beautiful and powerful cinematic homages in this film. Those are just some things that I wanted to throw out here. Cool. Yeah, one thing that I wanted to throw out before we wrap, um, I had a whole bunch of other stuff that I wanted to get to that we just sadly don't have time to get to. Um, I just wanted to briefly talk about the actual Goebbels, because I didn't really know who he was apart from a character in this movie. So I did a very little bit of research on it. And uh, so Goebbels, the minister of propaganda for the Nazis, he had a cleft foot, so he couldn't actually join the military like he wanted to. Like a lot of Germans, he got swept up in the German nationalist movement. He joined it very early. He joined Adolf Hitler very early and was an incredibly talented propagandist. He was incredibly skilled in music. He was in skilled in art. He would make posters. He was skilled at displaying how Hitler would come out to crowds and he would design all of the imagery of like the Nazis with the soldiers and the salutes and how they would march and how their uniforms, all Goebbels. And he came up with the idea of Hitler as the Fuhrer. He decided, rumor has it, no one has... 100% confirmed, but they believe, historians believe, it was Goebbels' idea to call him the Fuhrer. And, um, you know, I was curious about what was his fate in the end of World War II. Before Hitler killed himself, apparently, this is the part of the record, he read his will to Goebbels, in which he named Goebbels the next German chancellor. Hitler kills himself, and Goebbels is the chancellor for one day. 
he poisons all six of his children, and then he and his wife poison themselves. And they just all, he kills himself and his entire family before the end of the war. Prior to doing that, he instituted a policy, a propaganda policy of total war, saying that if the Nazis were going to lose, every single ounce of German blood and treasure must be spent before surrender, essentially saying we'll either win the war or be destroyed. Then Hitler kills himself, and then a day later, day later, Goebbels kills his family first and then him. And I thought that was something in this movie that I just wanted to mention as we meditate about this movie that this incredibly talented propagandist um, murdered his children and then killed himself. And good riddance. Yeah, yeah, for real. And uh, anything else? Um, gosh, you know, I wish we had, you know, another two hours to talk. Uh, maybe this is something we'll come back and revisit, or maybe there are elements of this that we'll, uh, expand in blogs later on the website. Um, but there are some really amazing podcasts out there and books and essays that you should read. If you want to know more about this movie, the historical context, especially the, um, cinematic references, there are some exhaustive studies and I will try to post those on social media or in our show notes so that you can look further. This has been a really thrilling and an exciting conversation for me. I have learned a lot and I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Didn't even scratch the surface. Yeah. I think we started a conversation about this movie. If you guys out there and gals want to hear more Quentin Tarantino talk, be sure to let us know. We would love to talk more. We can't wait to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. <laughs>